I would ask you, how shall a man know his gods? By the signs of their divinity. And what if thieves walk among the gods? And then indeed, how shall a man know? By the secrets of the gods' minds. That is true. Their knowledge will reveal them. Hello and thank you for downloading this Trap One podcast. I'm Mark. I'm Jason. So Jason, uh, last time we spoke we were talking about Rosa, the third episode of series 11. Uh, What did you think of the rest of the series? I can sum that up with one little factoid. The nominal season finale, the Battle of Rav or Skolos or whatever it was called. Yeah. Because the episodes reach the U.S. on Sunday night, which is the end of the weekend, I don't often have time to watch them the day that they air. So I watched the first half three days later, and then I didn't finish watching the episode until the night before the New Year's Day special. I think that pretty much encapsulates the season for me. I just had no interest in starting, and then I had even less interest in finishing Mm -hmm. the season finale. And that has nothing to do with the regular cast. I thought they were all phenomenal. But some of the episodes I had major problems with, some of them bored me to tears. I would say that Kerlam was probably my favorite episode of the season until the New Year's Day special came along. But the biggest fundamental problem with Kerlam, which is pointed out to me on Facebook, is that the enemy is mechanization. And in Kerlam, the bad guy are the humans. So it kind of inverts... Uh, the message on its head. Demons of the Punjab I thought was terrific. Uh, Really nothing else stayed in my attention for more than five minutes. I watched it once and I was done and I don't need to see it again. And then I loved, loved, loved the New Year's Day special. Except it was pointed out to me on Facebook afterwards that the special completely underutilizes and misutilizes the Daleks. Because you have a very topical monster, which is fueled by hate, which is, even now, it's a complete parallel of what's happening in the world today. But instead, the script passes them off as mere alien psychopaths and gives them no backstory whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And then you have an interracial relationship, which is at the heart of the story, and the Dalek doesn't even comment on it. Yeah. So it's a good episode. It was fun to watch. It was very well written. And I love the idea that Unit was eliminated because of Brexit. But again, the script just doesn't work from a fundamental standpoint. So this was, for me, the weakest season of the revival, even worse than some of the Matt Smith seasons for me. And just disappointing, 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 if I had to sum it up in one word. Yeah, I think I agree about the finale, uh, the Battle of Ravskarov Collis. That was was a low point uh, of the series for me too. But yeah, I enjoyed Resolution. That was... um, it was a good kind of bit more uh, fast-paced adventure, but yeah, there doesn't seem to be a lot of interest in, in exploring subtext or um, I think properly really investigating the, uh, the the sort of emotions of the companions in a way or the uh, the consequences of things that happened to them particularly. Uh, or do- take an important political point and then they will ignore it, like the episode with Chris Noth as the American bad guy. Yeah. It, just, it started a thought, it never finished the sentence, and then the character never came back later in the year, so it just sort of was an annoying loose end. Yeah, there, it was, there was a chance there. I mean, I think, I think it's difficult when you've got a, a Trump analogy like that, possibly, because 
he defies uh, satire in a way. Um, but yeah, there was the opportunity to make some points that that weren't really because he did things his way and walked off scot free at the end, which is, I suppose, uh, <laughs> Trump's story so far. But it's not what you want to see in Doctor Who, is it? No, we come to this for escapism. We do not come mm. to this to be reminded of how horrible our lives are. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so this brings us to uh, what we're going to be talking about today, which is The Good Doctor by Juno Dawson, uh, the first of the 12th Doctor spin-off novels. Uh, and I guess these were written without that much knowledge of the series, um, given that they came out during the run of the series. I think maybe the authors didn't have... Uh, you know, a huge amount of idea maybe about the way it was going to go, the tone and the ethos of Series 11. They probably were able to see rough cuts of the first couple of episodes, and they probably had the detailed character breakdowns. I mean, for example, there's a lot of mention made of Ryan's dyspraxia. Mm-hmm. There's very little about Yaz being a police officer. You figure that should have informed the way her character interacts throughout the story, but really doesn't. There's a lot of mention of Graham being a bus driver, but there's, yeah, as you say, there's really no virtual continuity links to the season at all. Yeah, and I think because it opens um, at the end of an adventure, um, which is a pretty big scale one. The Doctor's stopped a civil war between some human colonists uh, on the planet Loba, uh, Lobos, uh, and these, uh, and the alien Loba. Um, and, and that kind of is, is felt out of whack with series 11, the doctor being that proactive, um, like st- there's not really that sort of, uh, stopping any wars or big confrontations like that. It's, she's written more like the other modern series doctors or, or the other doctors full stop here in this one, I felt. Right. I mean, I'm not going to hold that against the author. She's writing what is essentially a young adult novel, Mm -hmm. which was timed to be released concurrently with the series. And this was not meant to be a new adventure. This was not meant to be a story that takes place after resolution and specifically builds on the themes of uh, whatever the themes of season 11 were supposed to be. Mm. This is a young adult novel, which was timed to get out early. So I certainly don't hold any of that against the author. I think we have to judge her story on its own terms. And you have this very, I want to choose my words very carefully here, but in the first chapter, the doctor stops a war between two sides. Number one, because the leader of each side has to be on the front lines. The equivalent of this would be Hitler and Churchill both being on the front lines at the climactic battle of World War II, which is implausible, yeah. but is an enter- you, you, it's the way you have to tell your story in television terms. And then the doctor stops the war by picking up rubble and saying, this used to be people. And both sides immediately realize their folly in an instant. So this becomes a fairy tale rather than a story that would actually happen. But as a fairy tale, it is very comforting. And you walk away from the chapter saying, gee, if only the world worked that way. Hmm. Yeah, I think um, on the first page, there's a line in there, because we're seeing it from the, the, the point of view of the, the Loba general, uh, Oryx, I guess that's how it's pronounced. Uh, and she says something like, Lobos for the Loba. 
um, which in this country would would kind of uh, you'd associate that with um, with like a far right party, like the British National Party. They they'd say something like you know Britain for the British, you know, as a kind of anti-immigration slogan. So you, you kind of immediately get where they're coming from uh, with that. This um, and here, of course, in the states, we have America first. Yeah, yeah. So same sort of thing. Yeah. So if uh, if if the the slogan here had been uh, Lobos first, yeah, you'd you'd got this sort of uh, the resonance there. Um, so yeah, it kind of immediately sort of strikes a chord because obviously, like you say, both of our countries are we're seeing a rise in in nationalism and racism uh, and, and anti-immigrant sentiment. Uh, so in this case, the, the humans are the settlers uh, on the planet. The native lobos let them settle initially, but then because the humans have, have bred and expanded, um, the, uh, the the lobos have waged war against them. Uh, and yeah, like I said, I think the the doctor reminded me a little bit of uh, the Zygon inversion of uh, of just kind of pointing things out to the two sides. So she said, you know, well, there isn't a shortage of food or space or anything like that. You know, what, what's the problem basically? Um, and and again, it's it's uh, it's like the countries that we live in. You know, we live in two of the richest countries in the world, but the uh, the right wing press. For example, here would have us believe that um, that the NHS is struggling because of immigration, um, not because of government cuts and, and an aging population, and, and the reasons why you know it, it actually is under pressure. And then, of course, here in the states, we are told that the country is and that the years and years of left wing government have left us completely devoid of income, and we cannot pay any of our social security or Medicare, and these programs must be eliminated. And then in the very next breath, we're told that we're supposed to give $6 billion for a showy border wall, which is not actually going to solve any of the problems they're telling us it's going to solve. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. My apologies to Juno Dawson, but uh, your story uh, touched a raw nerve here. Yeah, yeah. it's it's difficult not to relate it to the the, the times we're living through. Is obviously uh, in, intentionally there. Um, and then the the sort of the uh, the coup de grave of stopping the war is when the doctor reveals that Oryx's son is still alive um, and has fallen in love with a human woman, um, which uh, which kind of does chime us probably with series eleven. There's a big emphasis on family there, so that uh, that's ultimately what what stops the war. And of course, the fact that the generals. Son and the human daughter have managed to reproduce and create an interspecies child. Yeah. Which becomes even more interesting when you reflect upon the fact that Juno Dawson is, I believe I am correct, I don't think I'm missing anybody, I believe Juno Dawson is the first transgender writer to be commissioned and paid to write for Doctor Who. I think that's correct. Yeah, I can't. This is excluding Elizabeth Sandifer, who is uh, off license and not part of the series umbrella proper. Mm -hmm. But I believe Juno Dawson is the first commissioned transgender writer. So the fact that she writes a book in which uh, an interspecies romance saves the day is tremendously prescient. Yeah. Which I don't think we said actually that the loba resemble humanoid dogs as well, don't they? So it's, it's, it's uh, harks back to the Russell T. Davies tradition of. Um, given aliens um, kind of recognizable features from, from Earth animals. I was reminded of the episode 
gridlock where there is a humanoid cat and a human romance and they have a litter of literal kittens yes yeah that's exactly what i thought of as well yeah and, and probably similar sort of makeup with the, the furry faces and things yeah yes the first of i made a, i don't know if you marked it but i made a list of six episodes plus books to which uh the good doctor is almost a literal sequel and i'm not sure if this was intentional on the author's part, or if whenever you tell a story of religious domination, this is something that Doctor Who goes to over and over again. Mm-hmm. So there are six episodes slash books that I was reminded of almost literally. And the first one that I'm going to talk about right now is a little bit of a deep cut, but it was a past Doctor adventure that came out about 15 years ago called The Colony of Lies. Uh, by Colin Brake, the TV writer, which that was a gritty, nasty Western in space about a human colony that goes back to reinvent the Wild West, but they build it on top of a colony of humanoid warrior dogs. And this is a much more politically savvy YA version of Colony of Lies. Now, again, Colony of Lies came out when the past Doctor Adventures were kind of struggling out of existence and nobody was really reading them. So I don't know if it was in anybody's mind, except that Steve Cole, who was the editor for this book, was involved with the books at about the time that Colony of Lies came out. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's a direct parallel or maybe it's just a happy coincidence. But if you're a long-time Doctor Who reader, this is a somewhat familiar story. Right, I don't think I've read that one. I uh, I didn't um, I didn't make my way through all the all the past Doctor Adventures. I think it was when I was a student, so I, I couldn't afford two books a month at that stage <laughs> uh, from the uh, from the Doctor Who range. I've been gradually catching up with them, uh, but I'll look out for that one. It also had the misfortune of coming out right around the time that Russell T Davies announced the new series. So, interest in a second Doctor story at that point would have been a little bit low. Yeah, as people were looking towards the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was the kind of news that scuppered a few things, wasn't it? Like the uh, the the Scream of the Schalke series and things like that. Uh, yes, exactly. Uh, so while the Doctor and Graham are confronting the uh, the, the generals, uh, Ryan and Yaz are helping to transmit the, the, what's happening all over the planet um, using an old drone that they find in the TARDIS, uh, which we later find out is a Monopticon from Fort to Doomsday. Uh, they specifically mention Urbankin technology. Yeah. And if you're talking about these books, I imagine that apart from you and I, middle-aged men on a podcast, I would imagine the core audience for this book are children between the ages of 8 and 14. This is essentially a young adult novel. Yeah. It is almost a virtual impossibility that anybody reading this book apart from us is going to see the word Urbankin and go, aha! <laughs> so there's one of two possibilities here, Mark. Number one, you have an author who is an old-time fan and wants to give us a deep cut that is only going to be appreciated by a very, very niche portion of the audience, which is my favorite kind of continuity reference, so good for Juno Dawson. The other point is this came out at about the same time as the season 19 or the Peter Davis and Series 1 Blu-ray set. Mm-hmm. So it's possible that Steve Cole and the editors put that in sort of as a subtle uh, 
cross promotion. What do you think? Yeah, I wondered. I wondered that myself. If it was, uh, yeah, a little link to, uh, to to get people to go and buy the uh, the Blu-ray as well. Uh, but they they never use the word Monopticon, do they? They always say a bank and drone throughout. Right, but you and I know that it is yeah. a Monopticon. Yes. Yeah, you can immediately picture it. Yeah, it's uh, uh, and because it's one of the more successful effects, I think as well from that that era. Um, they're kind of memorable for that, aren't they? They uh, they work quite well. It is a soft continuity reference. You don't have to watch Fort of Doomsday to appreciate the reference, but mm. I was very pleased with it. Yeah, I suppose it could, a, have, it could have been any made-up word. Yeah, you know, it, it, it could have been a floaty ball from the planet Grok, but they specifically made it a deep Doctor Who reference from forty years ago. So yeah, well done, well done. I suppose there's a little bit of shared DNA with Fall to Doomsday as well, isn't there? Because that's got uh, some religious stuff. You've got the monarch in that setting himself up as a god. Uh, that's a good point. I should add that to my list of six stories that this reminded me of. <laughs> uh, so so they, they've they stopped the war. Um, there's a peace treaty. Um, peace has broken out and um, the, uh, the TARDIS crew are getting ready to leave. Graham's anxious to get away because it's it's time for Pointless, um, which is it's a bit of an in-joke because in the UK, Pointless is a daytime quiz show, which is scheduled directly against the daytime quiz show that Bradley Walsh hosts, uh, which is called The Chase. So he wouldn't be getting home to watch The Chase because obviously Bradley Walsh is the uh, is the host of that one. So uh, yeah, ah. uh, he's going home to watch his, his competition, uh, which is Pointless, yeah. That is very fun. That is something yeah. that is completely lost to me here in the states, where I didn't know any of this. That's that's amazing. That's very well done. Yeah, it's a it's a yeah it's a nice little in joke. And Pointless is hosted by Alexander Armstrong, who was the voice of Mister Smith in the Sarah Jane Adventures, and played the uh, the pilot, the the father of the children in the Doctor, the Widow, and the Wardrobe. Uh, so he has his own Doctor Who pedigree. And, of course, uh, you use the word pedigree as we're talking a story about dogs. So. <laughs> uh, that was that was a not intended pun, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Let's hope not. I actually auditioned for Pointless about three years ago, but uh, really? I wasn't chosen, unfortunately, no. Uh, but, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a cool game show. Um, it's, uh, yeah, quite popular over here. They do celebrity editions on a Saturday evening. Um, and they they did a Doctor Who themed one for the fiftieth anniversary where they had uh, they had yeah, two or three of the Doctors on and little companions and, and things like that. So I don't know what Graham would have made of that episode, but uh, here we go. <laughs> Although Bradley Walsh was in an episode of the Sarah Jane Adventures, as was Alexander Armstrong, so we live yeah. in a very small world. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I'd forgotten about that. Yeah, I forgot about Bradley Walsh yeah, being in that. Yeah. So uh, so they all pile back into the TARDIS and take off. Um, and Ryan realizes shortly thereafter that he's left his mobile phone uh, in the communications tower where he and Yaz were broadcasting from. And my immediate thought when he realized that he left his phone behind, not knowing what the book was going to be about, I just assumed that his cell phone was going to be discovered by the Lobo. Mm-hmm. Was going to become the basis for a new civilization based upon his phone. Yeah, <laughs> that was my immediate thought. But of course, that turns out to be a MacGuffin, and the phone is lost, and he never gets it back. And yeah. it turns out to be totally unimportant to the story. Yeah, there's an odd little bit where he said he'd um, he'd only just got that phone um, because he lost 
he lost his previous phone. It says because it fell in the bath while he was taking a. Then it said, "Well, the less said about that, the better." He thought, "Was he taking?" You a know, set? spent the last two weeks getting that image out of my head. And you <laughs> Thanks for nothing. <laughs> I didn't need to know about that. It felt like an odd thing to put in there because it does make you think about it, and you think, "What? What was he doing?" <laughs> yeah, and this is again, this is a young adult novel. So, hello. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so they they uh, they go back to Lobos. Um, the doctor and Ryan go off to retrieve the phone, uh, leaving Graham and Yaz in the TARDIS. Um, and it quickly becomes apparent that some time has passed, because they find a huge temple in the shape of the TARDIS, which wasn't there when they left. And this brings us to uh, continuity reference number two after the Colony of Lies. Mark, you're you're an old time fan like me. What Doctor Who story pivots around the fact that there is a seven hundred year gap <laughs> right in the middle of the story? Uh, the arc. Exactly yeah. the arc, and that was told a little differently because there you had parts one and two told in the beginning. Mm-hmm. The TARDIS leaves and then immediately lands on the same spot seven hundred years later, and they realize that they have inadvertently ruined this society. And at the end of episode two of the arc, there's this glorious pan up the statue, which the humans had started building 700 years ago. And when they get to the top, it's no longer a human, but it's now an alien monoid. Yeah, yeah, I had the same thought there, yeah. That image, again, I don't know if this was intentional, but it's almost identical, uh, where you have, instead of the radio tower where the phone has been left, there is now an enormous... TARDIS-shaped temple where the radio tower had been. And they realize that they've jumped forward 600 years in time and that uh, they've done a little more damage than they were anticipating. Yeah, and, and the other thing, and, and, and if you're going to mention this, was the face of evil, um, as in coming back and finding some huge monument to uh, uh, to a previous visit by the Doctor. And that's number three on yeah. my list. It's like <laughs> you're looking at my notes from across the pond. <laughs> Uh, so they, um, Graham and Yaz get uh, sick of waiting for the Doctor uh, and, and Ryan to return. So they, they go and look for them. Uh, and they're shortly accosted by a drone, which is uh, because the, they left the Monopticon behind. Uh, the technology has been copied, basically. So this is bigger, and it's got rusty spikes all over it. Um, but these are the eyes which are used by the temple for surveillance and enforcement. Um, and because uh, Graham, Graham hides at Yaz's behest, um, but because Yaz is uh, a woman who is out and about on her own without her husband or father, uh, the uh, the eye tries to arrest her and then incapacitates her uh, for breaking the law. Which, and that's uh, basically the story right there. Yeah. You have a war that has stopped because you have the first female doctor stops the war through force of words. And in the very next chapter, the end result of the Doctor's interference, which has become chapter and verse religion to this planet, women are now illegal, even though it was a woman who saved their bacon 600 years in the past. That's basically what the story is about. That's all you need mm-hmm. to know. This is, uh, this is very, very, very pointed. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and so, Chad, we... We spoke briefly before we started recording about The Handmaid's Tale as well. It's um, she's where echoes of that story, I think, come in as well about uh, the way that women are treated. Every every January first, I make it my ambition to start 
a new young adult series or, or some mm-hmm. science fiction series of some sort. So one year on January 1st, I started Lord of the Rings, read a chapter all the way through. One year on January 1st, I started Game of Thrones, three chapters a day, read it all the way through. It took several months. This year, I was going to do The Maze Runner, which is a very well-regarded YA series, spawned some movies. But as I was getting ready to purchase the series for my Kindle on New Year's Eve, I learned that the author had been Me Too'd, and had been fired by his agent and dropped by his publisher. Uh, So I decided I no longer wanted to pay money to read The Maze Runner. Mm -hmm. So I picked up The Handmaid's Tale instead. Um... And I started reading The Good Doctor on the same day that I started reading The Handmaid's Tale. So even though there's no direct reference in here to The Handmaid's Tale, very, very, you have to assume it was almost a deliberate influence because there you have a society that's been taken over by religious fundamentalists and women have been reclassified as property. And here in The Good Doctor, it's almost the same scenario, minus the uh, sexual politics. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so uh, the Doctor and Ryan, they, they go and investigate the temple because obviously it looks like a huge TARDIS and it's the same colour. Um, and they discover it's called TARDIS, uh, which is another huge coincidence. Um, so they, they wander inside and there's engravings of, of winged angels flying out of the TARDIS. Um, and there's signs which indicate that there's separate male and female worshipping areas. Um, and then they see a huge stained glass window uh, which shows a picture of Graham with his his, his arms held open. Um, so I guess the picture on the front cover isn't that, because uh, his arms are folded on that. Um, and that the people here worship a deity called the Good Doctor. Uh, which, I, I don't know if, it, again, whether this is one of the, the ones you're going to mention, but it reminded me of A Good Man Goes to War as well, the way the Doctor's name comes to mean something, depending on what the, de- the Doctor did when he visited somewhere. So... There's a planet in that where the people from there believe that Doctor means warrior. Um, and in this case, it's it's um, another name for God, basically. Yeah, that was, again, that was not one of the stories on my list, although that's also a really good idea. I just, I choose to spend as little of my life thinking about a good man goes to war as possible. I wake up in the morning and I think to myself, how can I not think about a good man goes to war today? <laughs> I don't um, mind a good man goes to war. But... From my point of view, you have a society that worships a god, but when the god actually shows up, the identity is wrong. So for my money, this was, uh, again, conscious or not, this was very much building along the lines of the Aztecs, where Barbara walks out of the temple and is mistaken as a transgender reincarnation of, of a very beloved god. And quickly, of course, by the time the story reaches the halfway point, she has abused her authority and they have lost their belief in her because they're like, this is not what our God would have said. Yeah. So Barbara and Yataxa and then Graham and the doctor with similar results. And that's good because if you're going to base your novel on any Doctor Who story from the past, the Aztecs is a very, very good place to start. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, and then at this point, the, the Doctor starts telling Ryan a little bit about the Time Lords um, and seems to be alluding to probably Underworld and, and probably, uh, you know, kind of similar civilizations that are affected by the Time Lords as the, as the minions in that one. 
right? Which which is a bit at odds with Series Eleven, isn't it? You can you can understand why Juno Dawson would would think that the the Doctor would continue that trend of talking about being a Time Lord and and what it means. But the Thirteenth Doctor hasn't on screen hasn't mentioned being a Time Lord at all, has she? I hadn't thought of it in those terms, but now looking back, I believe you're I believe you're right. The Doctor has not had much of. Stephen Moffat made so much of the Doctor's past where Gallifrey kept coming back, mm-hmm. whereas with Chris Chibnall, it's almost a conscious effort to make the Doctor a lone traveler again. Yeah. Which is why we talked last time about this being very reminiscent of William Hartnell's first season, mm-hmm. where you didn't know who the Doctor was, and he was a person without a background, with three companions. Yeah. Yeah, it does seem like a very conscious influence, doesn't it? Yeah. Which brings us back to the Aztecs, which was very much part of that first season. Yeah. So then one of the uh, one of the eyes turns up and and sort of um, quotes some some scripture at them, um, and uh, tells them that the good doctor made man in his image, that men and women uh, men can't shouldn't worship with lowly women folk and, and things like that. So I think this is a bit of a swipe at Christianity as well, isn't it? About sort of uh, you removing women from history and, and sort of taking power away. Um, you know, there's some, some definite parallels there, I think. Right. And then, of course, uh, again, I am not a Christian. I wasn't raised in the religion. And I, I know about it only through cultural osmosis. However, with Christianity, you have the book of Revelation and you have the idea of end times. You have the idea that history is going to end mm-hmm. and the deity is going to come back and everybody is going to live forever. And... Not to jump the gun on the good doctor, but the idea here is that when the doctor comes back, history is going to end and everybody is going to travel in time with him and live forever. Yeah. Yeah, so the, um, the, in the meantime, the, uh, an eye has found Graham um, and believes Graham to be the good doctor. So uh, the, the, back in the temple, there's, um, the, the eye is trying to kill the doctor for defiling the temple by by being a woman in the uh, in the sort of the male only worshiping area, um, but then it all stops when when all the drones come in and they bring Graham in and they start chanting the time is upon us, um, because as you say they believe that the sort of uh, the end of days is uh, is upon them because the good doctor's returned um, and is going to take the whole population away to travel uh, in time and space, which is hilarious because Graham is a truck driver with a <laughs> funny accent who speaks almost entirely in slang. Yeah. And the idea that they recognize him as a god is hilarious. Yeah, yeah, very much so. He's, he doesn't um, put up a very convincing uh, act as he is a, as a god. But. And like Barbara in the Aztecs, the very first thing he does is try to outlaw their most cherished belief. Yeah. Human sacrifice versus the exclusion of women, which is the, the beginning of the end of his being worshipped as a deity. Yeah. Um, and then this does make you think about sort of, uh, you know, kind of evangelical Christians, you know, kind of, um, right wing, um, people that, that, um, you know, if, if Jesus did come back, if he was real, um, would be, uh, they wouldn't really like him or, you know, kind of, uh, heed his message of, uh, of tolerance and inclusion at all, would they? And being that he was the, uh, the inheritor of a very different religion himself. Yeah. Never set out to form his own or so I'm told. Although, for, uh, for me, uh, being of the Jewish faith, and not to throw 3,000 years of my ancestry under the bus, mm-hmm. but in the more fundamentalist divisions within Judaism, 
speaking specifically of the Orthodox and the ultra-Orthodox, you literally have segregated seating in the temples, uh. where the not not in the branch of the religion that I adhere to, but uh, in the more observant strains, you do have segregated seating, the men on one side, the women on the other. Right. And of course, you call them temples rather than churches, the way they're called temples in this story. I don't know if Juno Dawson is making an observation about my religion too, but the parallels are there if you want to look for them. Right, I hadn't realized that at all. Um, um, I should maybe say where I come from as well. Just uh, I'm an atheist, so um, I, uh, although I'm most familiar uh, with Christianity, um, it being the sort of dominant religion here, um, I don't have any sort of uh, any interest in, in any of this stuff. So yeah, then we we meet the high priest Mikados. Um, so he arrives and uh, sort of explains that they, uh, in this religion, women are blamed for for the fall, uh, which is some kind of great plague which was uh, visited upon the uh, the the humans and and lobas alike uh, sometime in the past, and that this was some kind of punishment for uh, the interspecies relationships between the humans and loba. Which is also what had happened in between episodes two and three of The Ark, another William Hartnell story, because there it was a plague which the doctor's companion had brought on board, which returned hundreds of years later and completely altered the balance of power between the humans and the monoid aliens in that story. Yeah. yeah There's that parallel again. It's suggested here it's, it's massively reduced the, the, the numbers of Loba, isn't it, that um, they only account for about a fifth of the population now. Whereas they were in the majority um, when they they left six hundred years ago, right? And I I believe the reason that they have become subservient in the humans' religion is that before he left the first time, Graham had made a comment about dogs being man's best friend. Yeah, and they completely ran with that in the wrong direction. Yeah, that he um, that yeah, the idea was this was just uh, a kind of a dad joke, wasn't it? That he uh, he'd been saving up that he mentioned as he left, and then yeah, they've this this has been one of the central tenets of uh, of this new religion in the meantime. Uh, <laughs> right, so, poor, poor Graham. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's there's kind of one scene where he, he finds this stuff out, and he feels really guilty about the the centuries of subjugation, but then it's not really dwelt on much after that, is it? Um, I thought it was going to be a bigger a bigger part of it. Uh, it's kind of beyond the scope of the book. This is meant yeah. to be, again, a, a, an action-adventure story, mm. and it's not... What's the word I'm looking for? It, it's The religion is there as flavor to the story, and there's obviously a heavy message, but we're not meant to have Graham feel miserable and uh, feel bad for himself. It's pointed out, this is beyond his control. This is completely... Yeah. An unintended consequence. He shouldn't feel bad about it. It's not his fault that the wrong people ended up getting in charge and completely manipulating scripture to their own ends. Mm-hmm. Uh, so then, it uh, we, we also learn that um, yeah, Ryan and Yaz in this religion have been conflated into uh, Saint Rasmin. I laughed out loud. Right. That was that was awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and the doctor herself is, other than the name, has been erased from 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 this history completely. Uh, so Graham uh, introduces the doctor as the good nurse, um, which I, I guess is a bit of a dig at sort of uh, kind of when stupid people say that a, a female doctor who or would that be nurse who? 
That may be the stupidest thing that I've ever heard. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so meanwhile, uh, when Yaz wakes up in prison, she's locked up with a, a loba um, who's apparently called Sea Dog Bob. Um, and she sort of le- we learn a bit more about the history of the planet here. We learn um, that uh, they've no idea about the peace treaty, which they helped to forge last time. Um, and that uh, just as Yaz has been arrested for, for being a, a lone female, that the loba can also be imprisoned uh, for being out in public without their human masters. And Yaz is also warned that it's blasphemy to speak of a time when the human and Lobo were on equal footing. There's another character in the prison right across the hall in a different jail cell named Tromos, who's also, like Sea Dog Bob, a very important character. Because yeah. we learn that he has been pumped full of steroids in a failed attempt to turn the Loba into a sort of warrior race. Yeah, so he's this, this huge Loba, um, incredibly strong and powerful. Um, but but kind of unstable as well, isn't he? And, that, and that's why he's locked up. He's, he's dependent on drugs to stop him from just kind of turning homicidal all the time. Right. Then he, as soon as Yaz gets out of the cell, spoiler alert, he immediately tries to uh, strangle her to death through the bars. Yeah, so there's a, there's a rescue attempt, um, which uh, Yaz is caught up in because, because Bob's being rescued. Uh, and Bob has to use a stun gun on Tromos to, uh, to, to get Yaz away from him. Um, and the, the rescuer is a human woman to, who, who we learn is Bob's partner, um, which is Miana. Maria. Maria. I thought I'd written that wrong. Yeah. <laughs> um, so they escape through the, the sewers, which, uh, which is all, all sounds kind of pretty disgusting when, <laughs> as Yaz is describing it from her point of view. Uh, yes. In, in, in gruesome detail, I might add. Yeah. <laughs> Um, meanwhile, the, uh, the doctor, Graham, um, and Ryan learn about the explosion at the prison. Um, and, uh, so they all, they all, uh, sort of head down there. Um, and, uh, it seems that you, they learn that Yaz was being held in the part of the prison that blew up. So, uh, they're, they're kind of worried about her for now, but then they learn there was an escape so that she might've been, uh, she might've escaped with the rebels. And they quickly realize that Sea Dog Bob is not actually Sea Dog Bob. Which is a shame because that's a great name for a character, isn't it? It really is. <laughs> I was calling him. It's better than his actual name, which turns out to be Pry, which is a verb. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Pry is the the leader of the rebels. Um, so he's been in incognito, so that the, uh, the the temple guards didn't realize who they had. Uh, because otherwise, presumably, he'd have been been tortured to find out the location of the uh, the, the location of the rebel base. Which sounds a bit like Star Wars, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you can do your best Peter Cushing impression for that one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so um, yeah, so so Graham at this point is is absolutely venerated as as the return of this god. Uh, they have a big feast, which is the Saint Rasmin Day feast. Um, Mikados is the high priest. He, he's already suspicious of Graham at, at this point because uh, Mikados is, is basically a fundamentalist, isn't he? He's he's far more uh, kind of fire and brimstone than any of the other um, kind of brothers in this temple. Um, so he goes to a secret vault where there's um, a picture of Graham, which is a selfie that was taken before they left the last time to reassure himself that Graham is the good doctor. 
Um, but yeah, he's already kind of upset that Graham doesn't back him up on all his um, kind of uh, very extreme beliefs and views. You you have a storytelling trope here, which is not the way it would happen in real life. But whenever the doctor lands, she and her companions always manage to find the most important people yeah. on either side <laughs> of the conflict. Where she manages to find the high priest, and Yaz manages to find the number one rebel. Yeah. Whereas in real life, you're never going to get to those people if you're a random stranger who's blustered in. But for storytelling purposes, you have to have the most important people in the civilization there. Which brings us back to the Aztecs. In the Aztecs, Barbara is attended to by two priests who are the top two priests in John Lucarati's version of the Aztec hierarchy. Mm-hmm. And one of them is good from our point of view, and the other one is bad from our point of view. So in this story, you have Mikados, and then you have one of his acolytes, Tempika, if that's how you pronounce it, T-E-M-P-I-K-A. And they take on the Otlock and Plotoxal roles from the Aztecs, mm-hmm. where you have one priest who is on the side of the angels and the other priest who is about as cynical and nasty as you can get. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I think Tempika, that's how I'd, I'd pronounce it as well. Uh, so I was pronouncing Mikados as Mikados, like the Gilbert and Sullivan operetta, so I was just singing various Mikados <laughs> songs the whole way through. They're calling him Mikados, which is a very different vibe. Yeah, I thought it sounded um, sort of a bit Greek, uh, so yeah, I was probably saying like uh, Mikados, yeah. Um, and I never need an excuse to think of Gilbert and Sullivan, so <laughs> I was just humming the Lord High Executioner the whole way through. <laughs> My apologies if that, is what, if that is not what Juno Dawson intended, but that's how I remember. Uh So then, yeah, the, the Doctor learns that um, she, she gets talking to a, a, a Loban serving girl, um, and she's uh, they've been taught that, uh, like I say, the interracial breathing is, is what caused the plague uh, that wiped out so many people, which, which obviously... Um, they, they believe that it made the good doctor angry, and that was why she uh, she brought this plague down upon us. Um, and that made me think: we've got um, a couple of politicians in this country, um, kind of UKIP politicians, which is uh, the far right party that um, were advocating Britain leaving Europe well before the referendum. Um, so they're, they're kind of crazy people, but they uh, they were blaming flooding on same sex marriage. Uh, so yeah, it kind of made me think of that and wondered if that was a sort of uh, same kind of idea behind that, that kind of specious reasoning of uh, uh, of blaming something, which again in this case turns out to be something natural, um, on you know by othering othering people. Yeah. We have plenty of that here in the states. We have Pat Robertson, who's a crazy TV preacher, whose father was a segregationist. Democratic politician back in the civil rights era, and Pat Robertson later became a literal Republican candidate for president. We talked about this in Rosa, where the parties kind of switched sides during the civil rights struggle, mm-hmm. and the segregationist Democrats all became Republicans, where they remain today. And every time there is a natural disaster in the world, or in the United States more specifically, Pat Robertson will go on his TV show, and he will always blame it on the gays. Earthquakes because of the gays. Flooding because of the gays. So uh, I don't know if Pat Robertson is a known figure in the United Kingdom, but if you say the name Pat Robertson to anybody here in the United States, 
Oh yes, if anything bad happens, it's the gay's fault. <laughs> uh, no, I haven't. I haven't heard of him over here. Um, it would be almost comical if he didn't have such a large and lucrative following. Yeah, yeah. that's that's the worry, that's isn't the worry. it? Uh, he literally ran for president thirty years ago. <clears throat> crazy. Fortunately, didn't win, but he's still out there. Yeah. Uh, and the worrying thing is that, yeah, now that <laughs> in the era of Trump, that um, that he, he could become president, I guess, or someone like him. Uh, let's hope not. Yeah. Uh, so we uh, we then learned that, uh, yes, yeah, so Maria and Pry have a a daughter um, called Jaya, um, who's obviously half human, half loba. Um, the TARDIS uh, is delivered to the rebels camp because they've picked it up thinking it was a, uh, a new weapon from the temple um, what I did like here was uh, we have Yaz on her own for quite a while um, I think there's a lot in series 11 they don't really separate the TARDIS team in many episodes um, and Yaz in particular is not is often not well served so it was nice to have her on her own for quite a bit um, and uh, she's kind of figuring things out and asking a lot of questions uh, so I guess we're getting a lot of exposition through her, um, but I suppose uh, police training's coming in a little bit as well because she's uh, she's sort of questioning people and trying to get to the bottom of it. Right. I don't. I don't believe that she specifically thinks. Well, I'm, as a police officer, this is what I would do. I think a little more could have been done with that. Yeah. But again, Yaz is utilized here far more than she was on television, so mm-hmm. we shouldn't quibble over whether or not she's a screen accurate cop. Um, and then, uh, so Tempika, who's, who's one of the brothers, um, the, the monks, he reveals he has a contact in the rebel camp, which he communicates through um, uh, one of the eyes, um, and he takes Ryan along to to meet this contact um, in a bar. So we, there's a there's a hooded loba in a tavern who tells them he says the rebels are in the east mines, um, and also slips him a piece of paper at the same time. Um, and here we learn that the um, the rebel base are in these underground mines, um, and that they've been tunneling in order to try to sort of undermine the temple, um, both literally and figuratively, uh, to undermine the temple because they they want to make it collapse because it's the uh, the symbol of this oppressive religion, isn't it? And bringing us back to my native Judaism, you have the most sacred site in Judaism, uh, the first and the second temple on the Temple Mount which is now occupied by a mosque. Uh, both sides in Israel have accused the other of trying to undermine uh, the temple literally because you have the Arab forces in Jerusalem excavating under the temple and destroying all traces archaeologically of what used to be there. And then you also have the fear that the Israeli side is trying to literally collapse the Temple Mount so that the mosque collapses so that a third temple can be rebuilt, which was literally the plot of the Michael Shabon novel, The Yiddish Policeman's Union. Uh, so that reminded me a little bit um, here of what's going on in Jerusalem, where you have an archaeologically unsound temple on a mountain that is being excavated from beneath. Right, I didn't pick up on that at all. That's interesting. Uh, that's what I'm bringing to the table. I don't know if that was Juno Dawson's plan, but I think the parallels are kind of unmistakable. Mm. Definitely, yeah. Uh, and then at this point, we uh, they introduce a new character, which is the mayor of Old Town, 
who's called Bemus Beelin or Bemus Beelin. <laughs> I'm sorry. If you are writing an alien species or a human colony, you have to do better with your name. <laughs> you can't give one of your tertiary characters a name that is going to cause me to spew diet croak across my computer monitor. <laughs> Give them a regular name like Robert O'Brien or, or Peter Rosenberg. Don't name your character Bemis Beelin. I'm sorry. <laughs> Rant over. It's very alliterative, isn't it? <laughs> it, it it's, it's uh, yeah, yeah, that took me out of the story. Sea <laughs> Dog uh, Bob is fine. Bemis Beelin is not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh, we, we don't get much of him, but he's um, he's kind of a, a, a normal one of the normal residents, as in somebody who's neither a rebel nor uh, one of the monks at the temple, albeit he holds um, kind of a high public office. He's a, um, he's a secular leader in a religious-based society. Yeah. So he should be an important figure, but he's kind of subordinate to Mikados or Mikados. Yeah. So he never, he never winds up being a pivotal character in the story. But we, we get the idea that, that uh, yeah, so he's not as religious as, uh, as, as Mikados. Um, and there's a suggestion that he's having an affair with his Loba uh, servant as well, isn't there? Um, as, as Mikados enters, uh, he's sort of hurriedly moving away from her, which, uh, which suggests that something was going on there. Oh, I didn't pick up on that. Very good. Uh, so, yeah, I guess, I guess it's to show that he's not as, um, uh, as kind of... Uh, Holy as um, as Mikados would, would probably want him to be, but Mikados sort of files the information away as well. So obviously uh, so he's got a bit of leverage over him in the future. Uh, so yeah, Mikados arrives just to tell him that um, the, the the good doctor's returned. So so it basically it's the end of days. Um, meanwhile, uh, Tempika returns to the temple um, and tells them where the rebels are. So they they launch an attack on the east mines. Um, Graham tries to talk him out of it um, so he kind of gives an impassioned speech where you know he, he talks about sort of um, peace and everything else uh, and the doctor does a little trick with the sonic screwdriver where she ignites some uh, some gases that are leaking out of the, the ground from the mine uh, to give him a, a mysterious glow uh, to, to make him uh, I guess look more powerful um, which reminded me, I had to look this up, I could vaguely remember this from, from religious education at school, the transfiguration of Jesus um, when he goes up the mountain and, and starts to glow, I think. So I, I thought that was, uh, that was probably a, a link to that. Hmm. Then I was thinking of the scene in The Demons where the doctor uses the remote control Bessie to uh, get out of uh, being burned at the stake. Yeah, yeah, that's another good one, yeah. Your reference is probably a little more accurate than mine. Yeah, it's the same kind of place, isn't it? Of, of using technology to emulate magic and uh, uh, and, and kind of uh, fool people a little bit. But what I really enjoyed about that scene, and we're now literally at the halfway point of the book, it completely and utterly fails. Mm -hmm. And Graham is denounced as a false god, and the doctor is... Uh, set off to be executed for uh, apostasy. So the, this parlor trick just completely does not work. In Best Doctor Who Faction, the Doctor's idea just doesn't work and makes things worse. Yeah, a few of the monks are a bit unsure, isn't there? There's a, a kind of a schism. You get the idea might be starting to form. 
um, that some of the monks might still believe Graham, but um, but for Mikados, um, that's that's definitely that's uh, he, he no longer believes in the good doctor or that the, the the actual doctor is the good nurse or anything like that. So I'm now going to talk about the fifth of the six stories that I believe the good doctor is a spiritual sequel to, and this is another deep cut. It's called Zeta Major. It was one of the earlier past Doctor Adventures from the BBC Books line after they supplanted Virgin Publishing. Zeta Major came out about 20 years ago and was a direct sequel to Planet of Evil, the fourth Doctor story. And in Zeta Major, the fifth Doctor lands on Zeta Major years, 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 years in the future. And the events of Planet of Evil have literally become the foundation of a religion. Uh. And the Doctor's throwaway line at the end of the story about Sorensen needs to harness the, the geostationary power of uh, planetary movement to power his dying civilization, that becomes a literal religious project. And Professor Sorensen starts building this tower, which eventually ends up all the way up in the stars. And the planet has divided into two religious factions, all based on the belief that Planet of Evil, the story, was divine intervention by the Doctor. Zeta Major is a very cynical, very dark, very bloody story, even though it's a nominally a Fifth Doctor adventure. But the events of Planet of Evil have literally been turned into the Bible, and this throwaway line of the Doctors has sent the civilization off down a complete blind alley. And there's a hilarious scene in the middle of Zeta Major where, this, where the religious elders of the planet take out the videotape of Planet of Evil and start watching <laughs> it. And there's even the Tom Baker opening titles. Oh, this is interference from the vortex that we're watching causing this pattern on the screen. <laughs> Brilliant. It's a, it's a laugh-out-loud funny <laughs> moment in the middle of a very grim and uncompromising yeah. story. So I... Don't know if this is a book that Juno Dawson would have read, although Steve Cole was certainly involved in the planning of it 20 years ago. Yeah. But this is the good Doctor is Zeta Major done right. It mm. is a previous adventure where the Doctor has literally informed a new religion. Only unlike Zeta Major, this is not a nasty, grim, brutal, cynical, horrible, horrible story where everybody winds up dead. This is a much more family-friendly version of Zeta Major. So it's, it's that idea, but it's not right this time. Yeah. For all my complaints about a character's name, Bemis Beeland, I actually <laughs> enjoy the story. <laughs> Am I right in saying that Planet of Evil is the only other story that has um, floating drones as well, uh, other than Fort of Doomsday? They've got um, those sort of uh, tracker things that go out, haven't they? Those oh, right, right, the Oculoid trackers, yes, That's yes. It, yeah. Yeah, so that's another link to uh, to this story. Uh, they, they're both uh, picking up on uh, on on floating cameras. Uh, I suppose the other one is um, the uh, the fires of Pompeii. The the Doctor and Donna become the household gods, don't they? And uh, although it's not there's not the suggestion that uh, it's caused as much damage to the civilization um, in that one, but uh, well, it yeah, causes the, damage to the Doctor's personal timeline where he becomes where Peter Peter Capaldi goes from being a Roman who worships the doctor to literally becoming the doctor himself yes yeah 
Yeah, very uh, influential episode that one, isn't it? Because it's Karen Gillan's first Doctor Who story as well. That's right. Uh, so the Doctor at this point is um, is under arrest. Well, the the attack goes ahead. Sorry, on the mines, the the East Mines blown up. They believe all the rebels have been killed. Uh, the Doctor Graham and Ryan are mourning Yaz, and the Doctor and Graham. Arrested. Ryan managed to escape with Tempika. Um, and then we get. Uh, I really like the scenes where the Doctor is confronted, confronting Mikados, um, because she says, "Well, I'm the good Doctor," um, which kind of uh, angers him even more. Um, and I thought some of the dialogue in the next few scenes could have been copied and pasted from probably from Doctor Who forums. <laughs> where you get people um, apoplectic with rage um, about a female doctor. Uh, These lines, that this is, for a a woman to claim to be the good doctor is the foulest, most disgusting parody of our religion. Um, And uh, to distort the purity of the good doctor is an abomination and this kind of stuff. So, uh, yeah, I wonder if there was any royalties due to uh, uh, kind of uh, angry people on the Internet. Uh, you have a tr- you have a transgender author who's writing for a transgender doctor and is just literally laughing in the face of all these troglodyte idiots on the internet yeah. who are complaining about how a female doctor was going to ruin the series and it did ruin the series because it drove the ratings up. Yeah, and Doctor Who is not comfortable <laughs> having a popular series to be a fan of. Yeah, absolutely. So um, yeah, and then yeah. the the next scene that we got with um, with Mikados and. Um, and Bemis Balin, uh, I thought Balin was was like a sort of a normal Doctor Who fan or a casual viewer, where he has the line that say, he says, "But but the but the good Doctor's a mystical being. Could he not change his face?" Um, and <laughs> right. angrily goes, "He would return as a man," <laughs> um, which I think, yeah, you know, like um, any other person would think, well, the Doctor is a Time Lord who can completely change their physical appearance. Why could they not come back as a woman? Yeah, so I, I, um, I felt like that was another sort of uh, an exchange played out in the story that uh, that is probably very similar to exchanges played out uh, in real life as well. Right, and this could easily have been put into a televised episode as well, but they they wisely saved it for the books. Yeah, yeah. But no, it's, it's a very important part of the story where they assume the Doctor has to be male. Mm-hmm. And of course, she no longer is. I think because some of the some of the the the, uh, the the priests or the brothers still believe that Graham might be the good doctor. Um, instead of executing the doctor, they decide that uh, it should be basically a trial by combat. Um, and then, if if these people are um, kind of deities, that they'll be saved. So we learn that the doctor has to fight Tromos. Uh, who is the artificially enhanced, huge, hulking uh, loba that we uh, that Yaz met in prison earlier in the story? And this is where we get another deep cut continuity reference beyond Fort of Doomsday. In the third Doctor story, The Curse of Peladon, the Doctor is arrested as a spy and is thrown into an ancient fighting pit to fight a mammoth of a human being, the King's Champion. Yes. And they literally reference Peladon in the story here during the corresponding sequence. So again, either Judo Dawson had that fight scene in mind or Steve Cole put it in. 
Mm-hmm. But that's the second of two open continuity references to the classic series uh, right here in the book, Urbanka and Peladon. In this case, the Doctor is unwilling to fight Tromos uh, and shows him kindness instead. Um, so meanwhile, the rebels have managed to hack his collar. Uh, I don't know if I mentioned this. All the, all the Loba have to wear a collar. Um, and in Tromos's case, it's inflicting pain on him, isn't it? It's to stop him from, uh, from attacking any of the humans or anything like that. Once he's freed, um, he attacks the monks instead. And then a rebel attack ensues uh, in the, uh, the sort of the amphitheater where this fight's going on. In the confusion, Tromos escapes. He grabs Ryan and, and heads off. And this is classic Doctor Who, isn't it? The Doctor has an idea, but his companions, or in this case her companions, don't know what she's doing. Mm-hmm. And they are working at complete cross-purposes. So just as the Doctor manages to disarm Tromos the rebels and her companions come along and say, we're going to rescue you. That's yeah. precise that she doesn't need rescuing. And they release the collar and Tromos tears it off and immediately goes on the attack. That's a very nice little Doctor Who trope where the companions undermine the Doctor and create more peril. Yeah. Uh, I suppose it's like the end of Web of Fear. That's the most frustrating one, isn't it? When the Doctor's about to defeat the, the great intelligence and... Uh... Uh, and Jamie intervenes and, uh, and ruins it. They rescue him when he does not want rescuing, right? Yeah. I suppose goes on to cause all the trouble later on in Time of the Doctor. <laughs> it's, all, it's all Jamie's fault. That's right. Thanks for nothing, Brainerd. <laughs> uh, so um, uh, Maria is killed uh, during the uh, during the, the ensuing fight, um, and and the temple starts to fall apart um, because of the uh, all the the mining and the different stuff that's been going on. Uh, the the stained glass window of Graham breaks, which Mikados takes to be a sign, uh, and he summons everybody to the temple um, because he's uh, basically having decided it's the end of times. Uh, this is a this is a sign, um, and he's going to make everybody drink poison. Um, there's even a reference to Kool Aid, isn't there? Uh, yes, because that was the, the Jonestown Massacre, exactly. Mm. That's literally referenced to Don't Drink the Kool-Aid. Yeah. Uh, so, what's interesting for me here is a couple of things. Number one, Maria dies. Now, Maria is the wife of Pry, the rebel Loba dog, mm-hmm. and the mother of Jaya, who's the half-human, half-Loba, sort of next generation. We didn't mention that Jaya, now I dated a woman named Jaya when I was in law school, so thanks for the painful reminder, General Dawson. <laughs> I really appreciate that. Um, but So Tempika, the moderate priest, is having a relationship with this illegal half-human, half-loba offspring. Yes. Now Pry and Jaya react to Maria's death in very, very different ways. Pry goes on a suicide mission, to finish the excavation job and collapse the temple, mm-hmm. which will probably kill him and everybody inside the temple. Jaya turns out to be more of a moderate, and she helps Yaz try and intervene. So yeah, the doctor sends Yaz to stop Pry and get off his excavator tractor. And Yaz literally hangs on for dear life, trying to convince Pry not to commit 
uh, mass murder. Mm-hmm. Jay goes into the temple, and Mikados, we quickly realize, is just a, a horrible person, and he's been manipulating the religion for his own ends. But he's still, in spite of all that, he's a true believer, and he wants to commit mass suicide himself. So Pry is under the temple trying to destroy it. Yeah. And Mikados is in the temple trying to kill everybody in a different fashion. Which brings me to the last of my six stories that I believe inspired this one. One of my favorite Fourth Doctor stories, and we'll come back to this um, when the season 18 box set comes out. Full Circle. One of my absolute favorite stories. Mm Mm-hmm written by Andrew Smith, who is still heavily involved with the Big Finish productions. This is a human colony ship, which hundreds of years later have kind of forgotten who they are, and the leader of the colony ship has access to these secret files and knows things that literally nobody else in the colony knows about the origin of the humans on board. We learn here that Mikados also has secret files, and he knows things about the history of the religion that nobody else knows. Mm-hmm. And Graham, who's been kind of held prisoner in Mikados' chambers, uses the chaos of the collapsing stained glass window to escape and break into Mikados' secret vault. And in Mikados' secret vault, Graham finds the original peace treaty signed between the humans and the Loba and witnessed over by the doctor. So Graham realizes that Mikados knows the truth, and he and his success, his predecessors, I should say, have been manipulating history to turn the Loba into scapegoat, even though they're not, and to pretend that the good doctor is a male when they should know from the original treaty that the good doctor is, is female. So this is something that I probably would have edited if I were in charge of the book line. Mm-hmm. So at the same time, Mikados knows that his religion is somewhat fraudulent, but at the exact same time, he believes in it so much that he's willing to commit mass suicide so that he can live forever and travel with the doctor uh, in the afterlife. That didn't quite add up for me. I don't know if I missed something or if you have a different take on it. No, no, I agree. Yeah, that, I, I felt the same thing. Yeah, there's some kind of cognitive dissonance there, isn't there? That he's he's, he's a true believer, but he knows that it's all um, yeah, it's all built on lies. Yeah, right. Somewhere along the way, his predecessors decided that humans were superior to Loba, and they manipulated religious scripture. But they know that what they're doing is a lie in some sense. Mm. And yet, he believes enough that he wants to drink the Kool Aid along with everybody else. Yeah, yeah, it's it's odd that. There's another subplot that we should talk about where Ryan sort of becomes nurse to Tromos. Yes. removes the shock collar and helps Tromos get the medication that he needs to stop being so homicidal. Mm-hmm. Ryan and Tromos then go to the temple. So everybody's converging on the temple at once. Yaz and Pry are underneath. The doctor and Jaya are inside. And then Ryan and Tromos arrive as well. So everything converges all at the same time. And you have a grand climax inside the ruined temple. Yeah, the so the, the doctor kind of takes control at this point, tells everybody about the poison um, and, and reads the, the evidence that Graham found in the vault. Um, Pry is stopped by this because the doctor's words are transmitted through an eye. 
So that makes him sort of uh, stop his suicidal attack on the uh, the foundations of the temple. Um, and then Tromos arrives and launches himself at Mykodos, Um at which point the Doctor summons the TARDIS um, with the, the sonic screwdriver. It must have a Statenheim remote control built into it as well. There's another deep cut. Yeah. Statenheim remote control. <laughs> Um, so the TARDIS materialises around them, uh, thus saving Mikados from being torn apart by, by Tromos, um, which, if, if nothing else, must finally convince him that, uh, that the Doctor is who she says she is uh, and what the nature of the TARDIS is. Um, but when he, uh, when he comes out, he drinks the poison anyway and says, I will not live in this world of yours. Now, I have not followed Ian Levine's Twitter feed in about a year, but Ian Levine, the, the well-known Doctor Who fan and former show employee, went apoplectic when Jodie Whittaker was cast mm-hmm. and immediately denounced the show on Twitter. Yeah. So, obviously, Ian Levine did not kill himself, but he committed phantom suicide by denouncing the show. Yeah. Yeah, he said um, he said that he wouldn't watch it, and uh, yeah, he's no longer a fan, didn't he? And if he does have a secret copy of Tenth Planet Episode Four hidden in his basement, he probably destroyed it. Yeah, yeah. If he if maybe he's got a vault like Mikados does, that's the <laughs> yeah. So she, so Juno Dawson writes this really grand climax where everything comes together all at once. Yeah, and the villain Mikados is dispatched, and. It turns out that there are moderate priests, not just Tempico, mm-hmm. who are willing to step in and run the religion properly. Yeah, so it's um, they, they finally, uh, well, apparently again restored restored balance to the planet. Human and Loba can can live in peace again. Um, and Tempico and Jaya become the leaders of the, the new political leaders because they are an example of how to do it. You have the half human, half Loba. And you have her human boyfriend, who's a moderate member of, of the church. Yeah, it's very much the next generation, isn't it? That are, that are future, the future here, because um, Pry is uh, is obviously kind of uh, still grieving. Um, his, his reaction had been one of uh, to, to commit mass murder. Um, but it's, unlike Mikados, Pry sees the error of his ways and he he reforms, whereas Mikados' yeah. thought is to just kill himself to get his way out of it. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, and then there's a nice bit at the end where I think um, Yas hugs the Doctor um, and describes that the Doctor smells like solder or engine oil, but also sometimes like peppermint or beeswax or Earl Grey tea. Yes. Which made me think about the Jenny Colgan's novelization of the Christmas Invasion, um, where the tenth, the newly regenerated Tenth Doctor, is described as smelling like chalk dust, boiled sweets, lime, and diesel. Uh, so you've got the uh, the sort of the diesel and the engine oil as a as a bit of a link, and uh, it's an odd trend in um, in 2018 Doctor Who books to describe the smell of the Doctor. <laughs> On a related note, I'm not remembering from the woman who fell to earth, what was Ryan's occupation? What was his job before he started traveling in the TARDIS? Uh, he works in a warehouse, but he's training to be a mechanic. 
Uh, okay, because mm-hmm. the book here mentions that he was a mechanic. It doesn't mention the warehouse bit, where the working in the warehouse bit was very important in Kerblam. Yeah. I thought that might have been a continuity error. No, I just watched um, The Woman Who Fell to Earth again the other day, and yeah, when he meets, well, when he calls the police because he's found the, the pod in the woods, um, and Yaz asks him what he's up to, he's saying he's working in a warehouse, but he's doing an NVQ and being a mechanic as well. Right, okay, thank you. So, uh, and then we get the epilogue to the book, which is set another 600 years in the future, um, and a mother is putting her young son to bed, um, and he's got a nightlight that shows the TARDIS flying between the stars, um, and the the mum is sort of retelling the events of the Good Doctor, um, and again it's it's got distorted over time, but rather than being the foundation of a religion, it's now a fairy tale or a bedtime story. So it's it's like Doctor Who reset as it should be, um, rather than people treating it like a religion and taking it far too seriously and fighting about it. Uh, it's back to what it should be about, which is entertainment for children and merchandise. <laughs> and uh, in roughly that order, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I thought it was it was the perfect ending for the book. Um, that uh, yeah, it's uh, it's not something to be taken seriously. It's uh, it's a fairy tale, um, and and he's got a nightlight of the TARDIS, which sounds pretty cool as well. And what's also nice is that even though the story clearly has issues with fundamentalist beliefs, the church at the end does have good members, and it can be used as a force for good. Mm-hmm. This is not really a completely anti-religious or completely nihilist story. No. So it's not going to alienate any of the readers, except for those readers who believe the doctor should always be male. Yeah. <laughs> we don't care about them. Yeah. I'm not sure many of those that many of them will be picking this book up anyway. Probably, <laughs> uh, no, probably not. But this was the this was one of the first or the first Thirteenth uh, Doctor novel. Mm-hmm. So I have to say this was very successful because you have the meta narrative about the Doctor being mistaken for a male. So the story is about the Doctor becoming a transgender character. But the plot itself, either intentionally or not, calls back to several other Doctor Who TV episodes and books from the previous series. So it's got a very interesting premise, it's got a very interesting plot, and it's got a very interesting parallels to what has come before. Mm-hmm. And of course, the TARDIS crew are also portrayed very well. Yaz gets something to do. Yeah. And the Doctor is a little more proactive than Jodie Whittaker was allowed to be on television. Yeah. So, for a YA book, this is one of the better ones. One of the better ones. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. I, it, what occurred to me was, yeah, that um, the uh, the Doctor is, is way more proactive uh, in this one than, than most of the TV episodes. You, you can't imagine having a big enough impact really in any of the TV episodes for a religion to be formed anywhere that she's been. Um, this uh, Stopping the Civil War at the start of this and then um, kind of resolving the events of this one, um, it kind of feel feel more involved than, uh, than we've seen the 13th Doctor mostly. And it talks about the inaccuracy of history and the inaccuracy of scripture as well. Yeah. Yeah, and there's also the mirror to the sort of, as I say, kind of nationalism and bigotry that, uh, that that we see in the world as well. 
Right. There is one throwaway line towards the beginning uh, where the doctor says the Loba genetically are the DNA descendants of Laika, the first dog who went into space. Yeah, I'd forgotten about that, yeah. We're not sure if she's meant to be joking or not. Yeah. That, that was interesting. I, I don't know if that was... Yeah, I don't know if that was meant to be the literal truth or, or a joke. Yeah, it's it's nice to think that Laika had some adventures somehow, <laughs> rather than just slowly dying, isn't it? Does um, does it is it one of the um, does one of the books? Um, I think it's one of the BBC books where the third Doctor goes to find um, the, the the capsule or whatever that Laika was in. Um, and sort of brings it aboard the TARDIS and then goes and buries Laika somewhere on a an uninhabited planet. That was the beginning of the Lawrence Miles novel, Alien Bodies, which is the book where the Doctor in the future has died and the yes. Doctor's coffin has become a deadly weapon that is being bit on by a number of superpowers, including the Crotons. Haha. <laughs> yes, yeah, I remember that one. Uh, but the story begins with the doctor retrieving Laika's body, and then mm. the doctor's body becomes a plot device later on in the same story. Yeah, so I guess that's another little link, isn't it, with the uh, the fate of Laika? And I also like that the TARDIS, when it dematerializes the first time, has a wheezing, groaning noise, which is your classic Terrence Sticks description of what the TARDIS sounds like. Yeah, yeah, it's great that that's become the uh, the standard one. It, and that's the standard one in the books, and then the uh, the comic strip Warp. Um, is used on the subtitles on the TV show, uh, which I really like. At the end of the Ghost Monument, when um, the TARDIS is trying to materialize, the, the caption pops up and it says, Distant Warp, uh, which uh, I love that moment. Right, right, right. I mean, they sound nothing like each other. They've warp or wheezing and groaning, but uh, they've, they've both become the accepted terminology. I'm okay with that. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you very much for joining me to discuss this one, Jason. Thank you for having me. That was a very enjoyable book to read on multiple levels. Yeah, definitely. Definitely a good start to the uh, the 13th Doctor book run. So I guess we'll get back together. I think um, the Scratchman, the Tom Baker novel. Uh, which yes, is out at the end coming out soon. January, we'll, we'll get together sometime in February to discuss that. Looking forward to it. Yeah, I'm, I'm really, uh, really intrigued and Looking forward to that one. Uh, and, and Tom Baker's doing the audio book as well, which I'm, I'm pretty excited about. I'll definitely be getting that. Uh, I guess we can have Tom Baker do a reading for the next podcast. Yeah. <laughs> we might have some copyright issues there. But uh, <laughs> uh, but it, it looks from some of the pre-publicity that um, it's written in the first person as well. So having Tom Baker doing the audio book uh, will be, uh, I think it'll be pretty special. Very much so, very much so. Great. Uh, where can we find you on Twitter and on the internet? I am on Twitter at Doctor Who Novels, DR Who Novels, my semi-defunct blog, Doctor Who Novels <laughs> at WordPress. Um, hopefully you'll get back to that soon. That is always the plan. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you can find me um, at trap one underscore and you can find all our previous episodes uh, including many book reviews that jason and i have done um trap1.podbean.com thank you very much for listening goodbye <laughs>